The world is full of bitter people. If you've ever been to Starbucks, the whole concept behind Starbucks is community. Let's build a coffee house where people don't just go and get coffee. Let's build a coffee house in which people can sit, meet together, fellowship, even though they don't use the Christian word. You know, meet with other people, hang out, go on dates. Groups of friends can go and work in a community with each other. People in in different towns, different houses can come together and be one, in other words. But since the evolution of Starbucks has grown, you go into Starbucks now, what do you see? People with their iPods and their, you know, ears and they're on their laptops. You see a whole bunch of isolated people by themselves. Yeah, you might have a couple of people here and there grouping together. But what you're seeing is more and more people are being more divided. Social media is keeping people farther away. We think we're more connected, but in reality, I think we're getting farther and farther apart. You have a lot more uh, difficulties, especially with technology, right? You're always afraid of offending people because everyone's bitter at someone else. Always afraid that your text message is going to be miscommunicated. Someone's going to misinterpret what you're saying, so you add smiley faces at the end. You add, like, you spell things wrong so that people are like, oh, there's no way he's possibly mad at me. I always have to be, like, over the top with that. And if you're really serious, you have to call them so they know that you're not mad at them. Worst case scenario, you send a text message to the wrong person about someone else. <laughs> That's happened to me before. I was like, I can't stand, blah, 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 blah. And I sent it to that person. I was like, <laughs> it's like the world ended and I wanted to jump into the river or something. What do you mean? What are you talking about? I was just like, ha, ha, ha. I was just making fun of you. Like, I didn't even know what to say. <laughs> Like, I just tried to play it off, and uh, it was just bad. But at this point in, in our lives, I think a lot of us almost expect people to fail us. We're always afraid that someone's going to be mad at us, someone's always talking bad about someone else. We almost expect things to go wrong. In every, every situation, when you're driving, if some of you drive, you're expecting someone to cut you off. You're expecting to spill that cup of coffee that you just bought all over your pants. You're expecting things to not go the way that you're, you're planning. When you go to Starbucks, you expect that the barista is going to mess up your chocolate caramel macchiato whatever. And when they get it right, it's like a surprise. Oh my gosh, you got it right. But when they get it wrong, you let them know. Hey, you messed up my caramel mocha macchiato whatever, whatever it is. And then they, they're snappy back to you or they're nice to you, whatever. But maybe, what if... What if we forgave the people that offended of us? What if when that barista messes up your drink, you said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, part of the consequences of living in a sinful world is that we're surrounded by sinful people. Part of the consequences of living your life in a world of sinners is that you're going to meet them on a daily basis. And this includes Christians. We'd expect Christians to be the ones that are always forgiving, always loving, always showing more affection. And then you come to the church and you have a whole bunch of bitter people. There's people that profess to love God, but then they hurt you. And then you're not sure how to evaluate them. How should I treat this person? Now we're in the same, we're in the same church, so we have to go and see each other. But they said this about me. They treated me in this way. 
Maybe it's your parents, your family that's hurt you. What do you do? Do you kind of ostracize them? Do you put them off in due corner and say, well, they hurt me, so I'm just not going to talk to them. I'm just not going to relate to them as much as I used to. You know, my, my dad did this to me. He said this to me, and it really offended me, so I'm going to show him I don't approve. Or maybe I'll forgive him, but I just won't treat him or view him in the same way. Or what about friends that you just can't trust? Friends that share all of your secrets. You know, you thought you could trust that person. You tell them something, and they just tell the entire world. Now, I'm not thinking of anyone specific. I'm talking about stuff that I've seen in my own life. You trusted someone, they said a, a big secret that you thought they wouldn't tell anyone to someone else. And then you're, you know, you feel like you've been uh, lied to. You feel cheated. And then how do you view that person? Well, obviously they're not trustworthy. Well, I have to forgive them, but they're not trustworthy. So what do I do? I, I forgive them. I just won't trust them as much as I used to. Well, terrible circumstances occur in our world all the time. It's actually the natural workings of this world to experience pain. It's the normal thing to experience pain while we're in this world. How much less would the hope be for those that don't believe in Jesus? We Christians have this hope that it's all going to be made right in the end. That God will avenge us. But how much less is the hope for people that don't believe in God? Julian Beguini is an atheist. He's also a philosopher who wrote an article in response to Richard Dawkins saying that we need a slogan for atheism because atheism can be happy. It, can be, it doesn't have to be bleak. It doesn't have to be dark ages. We can create slogans to make people realize that atheism is freeing. And this is his response. Atheists have to live with the knowledge that there is no salvation, no redemption, no second chances. Lives can go terribly wrong in ways that can never be put right. The reason to be an atheist is simply that there is no God and we would prefer to live in full recognition of that, accepting the consequences even if it makes us less happy. The more brutal facts of life are harsher for us than they are for those who have a story to tell in which it works out right in the end and even the most horrible suffering is part of a mystifying divine plan. What he's saying is the reason to be an atheist is not because it makes you happy. In fact, atheism is less happy than being a Christian, than believing in God. Because the truth of the matter is, you may hurt someone and wish to be forgiven, but there's no guarantee that it's all going to be made right in the end. There is no divine creator that's going to bring it all together. There's no, uh, you know, when you talk to your friends, it's like, well, I think everything happens for a reason. There is no thing that happens for a reason. Maybe you have wishful thinking and you'd like to believe that there is some kind of God. That, well, I just don't believe in the Christian God, but I believe that there's some God, some workings some positive energy. I believe in karma. I believe in these things that's making it all work together for good. But what is that thing? Is that just wishful thinking or is that reality? Some people say, well, maybe not in God, but they're looking in a relationship. They're finding a relationship in which they, they believe the person will never hurt them. Well, that person, I can't trust him. I can't trust this person. I can't trust that person, but I can trust this person with everything. But the problem is we live in a sinful world and the more confidence you place in that person that they won't hurt you, the greater uh, failure you're setting yourself up for when they do fail you. When they hurt you, when they fail you, that person that you said, well, this person, I can at least trust this person, then they hurt you. What do you do? You're crushed. Apart from God, there are no promises of redemption. And then maybe you do put your hope in a God that you create, karma, whatever, but we have to be careful to separate wishful thinking, what we like to believe, 
from reality? What if there was an evil God that decided to torment everyone and didn't like anyone? It was just like, yeah, life is pointless and I want to kill everyone and torture them in the end. And that was reality. Even if you'd like to believe that there is a purpose in the end, there is none. And then there is no point to life. But if the facts are that Jesus is Lord and God of the Bible is true, then we have to understand scripture. We have to understand who he is and not what we like to believe. And that includes people that don't believe in God and don't believe in the Christian God. Because apart from the Christian God, it's hard to see why things are working out for a reason. Looking in Matthew chapter 18, the question is, people hurt us. And when they do, how can we forgive those people? What does it mean to forgive those people? It's the simplest of all questions. It's the most fundamental questions of all Christianity. We repent because there is forgiveness. But what does it mean to be forgiven? When we analyze that question, it becomes a little bit more difficult. And Peter, maybe we can sympathize with him in verse 21 when he comes to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. You see, forgiveness is the one attribute that Christians should show the most. And it often seems like we don't show it at all. It's the one attribute that Christians should be known for. The people that forgive. The people that love. And yet, do we exemplify that char- character trait? Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And instead, it seems like it's a substantial reason Why people don't attend church. Take a moment. Think of people that have backslidden away from God. Think of people that hate God, hate the church. Who do they really hate? Probably people in this very youth group. Maybe you. Why doesn't that person come to church anymore? Well, this person hurt him. This person said something to them. Or when they hurt this person, they didn't forgive them. It seems like it's a substantial reason why people don't attend church. It's the lack of love. People say the church is full of hypocrites. You see, Peter said, Lord, when people sin against me, and he forgot a fundamental question, which is, Peter, you can hurt people as well. He didn't say, you know, talking about himself, how much should I be forgiven? He didn't care about what other people did. When he offends someone else, it was when people offend me, when people sin against me, what should I do? Peter thought he was being generous with his forgiveness. The law, the Judaic law back in the day, said that people could be forgiven for three times. And after that, you're just erasing. That's it. So he's like, seven times, you know, number of completion sounds pretty good. So, Lord, I know the law says three times. How about seven? Well, Jesus said, what? In verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, love keeps no record of being wronged. That's the literal translation of that verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps no record of being wronged. Now, here's the immediate thing that I think about. How many of you, someone offended you, and you're immediately pulling up all the years of frustration, all the things that they said to you, one person says, when have I ever hurt you? Oh, let me tell you. 
and you have a list. And the worst is when you ask that question to someone else and like, uh, you don't remember on December 5th, 2011, when you did this and you said this to that person and you then said this. And you're like, oh my gosh, geez, where did this come from? It's like, sorry, I asked. And then you kind of blame them for being so particular about that thing, like so obsessive about those things. Because oftentimes these people, we as Christians even, will bottle things up. We don't confront things and we'll bottle them up and then we explode and like, you did this and did this and I can't stand you and now I'm going to raise you from my life for all the things that you're doing. Now, I appreciate certain people that want to be so apologetic that they go out of their way. I had this one youth leader uh, when I was in high school and he made a joke. He was teaching one night and he made a joke about Chinese food and referenced me. He was just like, Chinese food, ha ha, Alan. I don't even remember what it was, but apparently he made a joke about Chinese food. And I kid you not, for at least three months, every time he saw me, he apologized. He's like, Alan, I'm just so sorry. I can't believe I offended you. I failed you, Alan, for making that joke about Chinese food. I was like, I, I don't care. Whatever, Chinese food. I eat Chinese food, whatever. The next time he was like, Alan, I'm still, I feel so, I can't sleep, Alan. Forgive me. It's like, Dude, I don't care. It's like, I know you don't care. That's what's so disturbing. It's like, no, I don't mean like that. Like, I do care that you're sorry, but it's just, it was difficult. But I appreciate his heart that he wanted to be forgiven. If you don't give up your grudges, they're going to eat at you inside. And that's the thing I learned from him. And maybe you can see this in your own life. If you don't give up your grudges, if you hold on to them, it's going to eat you inside. Alistair Begg says, if we are harboring unforgiveness towards someone, we'll find that we cannot worship or witness. And our usefulness in the kingdom of God is sadly diminished. Can we who have been forgiven every debt by God honestly tell him we plan to hold a grudge against our brother and sister the rest of our lives over what might be some marginal, minimal offense? Of all things, the church is to be the people of forgiveness. Our pride is so great that we are reluctant to admit to being wrong. And perhaps even sadder, we are slow to grant forgiveness to those who seek it from us. Now, godly forgiveness does not just mean settling the score, being even. It does not mean like David and Absalom. David had a son named Absalom. And what happened is Absalom killed one of his brothers. And David was holding this grudge against Absalom. And so Absalom ran away from the land because he knew his father was mad at him. And David was hurt inside, not only because he lost one of his sons, but he lost another son that ran away from him and he was holding this grudge. So Joab, one of his commanders, came up to David and said, you have to forgive him. You have to bring him back into your palace. And so David says, Absalom may go to his own house, but he may never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king in 2 Samuel chapter 14. He says, all right, bring him back, but I'm not going to see him. Have you ever said to someone, I'll forgive them. I just won't be friends with them anymore. I just won't be as close with them anymore. I had a student um, two years ago, students graduated, he's long gone, said to me, these people have hurt me so bad in youth group. And they said these, these things to me. And I, I don't know if I forgive them, but I know Jesus wants me to forgive. So I'll forgive them. I just won't be friends with them anymore. And I said to him, you know, that's interesting. But what if Jesus said to you, you know, man, I'm going to forgive you of all of your sins. I'm just not going to be friends with you. 
Is that true forgiveness? I don't think so. I think forgiveness, true godly forgiveness is like Joseph and his brothers. You know, Joseph was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, left to die by his 12 brothers that he thought loved him. And then years go by, he's sold in slavery, he goes through all these things, he experiences traumatic things, and his brothers come back and they're at, they're at his mercy. He could execute them with a word. And what does he do? Not only hugs him, but he, the Bible says that he kisses his brothers. Nice. Some of you feel like if you forgive a person in a way that shows that you're just not mad at them anymore, you're being uh, unloyal to your true feelings. Well, I can't really show them that I approve of what they've done. I can't look at them the same way. But Joseph held no barriers. He truly forgave them to the point of vulnerability. He got so close to them in which he could have been killed right there on the spot. But he was willing to be vulnerable because he was willing to forgive his brothers. Now you might ask, how in the world do we have that kind of forgiveness? There's bitterness in my heart and I can't rid it, get rid of it. So how can I have that heart? It just seems so impossible sometimes, right? And if we let that bitterness grow like a weed, it will choke out any opportunity to have effectiveness for God's kingdom in the future. You won't be used for God. Your prayers will be hindered. You're going to be at Satan's mercy. You're going to be right where he wants you. You're bitter about this person that didn't do the right things to you, that you're bitter against this person. You can't forgive them. And now you're not affected for the kingdom of God because you're holding that sin inside of your heart. You say, forgive that man, forgive that lady. How I wish I could forget. I think I can tomorrow maybe, but I'm just not ready yet. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, by the way, is about $6 billion. Obviously, a debt that could not be paid in a lifetime. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found one of the fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about $12,000. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. And they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Forgiveness is not a suggestion. 
it is a command from God. It's not something that God says, and by the way, if you feel like it, you should probably forgive someone. It's a command from God. Mark chapter 11, verse 24 through 25. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Before you, you can have anything you want, just pray for it. But first, pray that the Lord forgives uh, make sure that you forgive someone else. There's no grudges in your heart so that the Lord can forgive your sins as well. Matthew 6, 14 through uh, 16. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Colossians three thirteen. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now here's the real question. Is forgiveness just a label we're putting on some new kind of thing that we're identifying with now? So when you say, I forgive this person, you really haven't forgiven them, have you? You've just taken something else. You said, I'm going to settle the score with this person and given it the word forgiveness. You haven't taken godly forgiveness. You haven't taken biblical forgiveness like it's shown here. True forgiveness is you're forgiven of your debt. You don't have to pay. It's not, here it is, we're going to figure out a financial plan so you can pay off $6 billion. So here's the question, why must we forgive? Why is it a must that we forgive? Well, obviously you might say, because God forgives us of our sins. Alistair Begg also said, anytime I harbor animosity towards anyone, it is because I have diminished my sense of the debt I owe to the living God. Anytime you feel like you can't forgive someone, it's because you have diminished your sense of debt to the living God. You say, well, this person owes me this. This person did this to me. You forget the $6 billion that you owe towards God. Well, maybe you don't feel like you need to be forgiven. It's often the most offensive thing that you can say to someone when you feel like you don't have to be forgiven, right? You go up to someone and the person's mad at you. They say, listen, I forgive you. Like, oh, it just like stirs up that emotion in you. Like, I don't need to be, for you should, I forgive you. You want to tell that to the other person because it's offensive to you. Verse 25 kind of shows us that sometimes that just means that we don't see how our sin, our sin, not other sins, but our, our very own sin hurts everyone else. In verse 25, it says, that his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and the payment be made. So everything that he had, even his family members. Because when you sin, it's not just between you and God, not just between you and someone else. It affects every single person that you know. And oftentimes we don't see that because we diminished that sense of debt. We don't see how depraved we really are. So we must grasp that truth first and foremost that all sin offends God before it offends other people. Why? Why does it offend God? This is between me and this other person. Why does God have to get involved with this? Well, because when we sin, we broadcast that we can live our lives better than the person who gave us life. We think that we can live life better than the creator when we sin. We say, I got this guy, I, I know what I'm doing, I'm gonna do it my way and we hurt other people. So it's offense against God who's giving us the rule saying, hey, live your life this way. And you're saying, no, 
I got it. I think I can do better than you. You actually think you can trump God. And that's why it's an offense towards him. So then you might ask, well, why the penalty of sin be death? Why is it that we have to die when we sin? Is that just the rule that God made up? Why didn't he just say 200 push-ups for someone that sins? Why is it that we die? And some of you might think, well, let me ask you, why is the penalty death? For those of you that might know the answer, keep your hands down. Because I may have talked to you about this before. But why do things have to die when we sin? Anyone know? Why do things have to die when we sin? Raise your hand, anyone. No one has any idea. There's no wrong answer. There's a lot of wrong answers, but I won't criticize you for giving one. You have one? Okay. No one? No student? All right, think about it this way. Let's say I give you a watch. A watch about $300. Now you have this expensive watch that's not yours. Now let's say that you took this watch, you broke it by accident. You dropped it on the floor, whatever. You broke the watch. So now you owe a $300 watch to the person who gave it to you, right? You're just borrowing it. But now let's say you don't have any money. Well, what do you do? All right, I can't fix the watch. I can't fix it out of my own power. Someone lends you money. Someone lends you the $300 to repair the watch. So now you have a new watch, but you give it back to the person who you borrowed it from, but it's not really the same because it's not the same watch, right? It's, it's repaired, it's fixed, but it's not the same exact watch. So you actually owe him another watch in essence because not only do you owe him the watch that you were given, but you owe him a watch on top of that. Are you okay, Angela? Do you understand? Do you, do you need me to slow down a little bit? You confused? Say it. Got to nod now. You confused? Yeah, exactly. You need a new watch. Well, I mean, you broke the watch. He wants his watch back. Maybe it was sentimental, sentimental to him. It was the watch that his mom gave him. So it's a $300 watch that has sentimental value. Let's say that you had a, it's not a watch, it's a wedding ring. It's passed down through generations. It's irreplaceable. You can't replace that watch just by getting a new one, right? It's a, a family heirloom. You lose the watch. What do you do? You got to get another one. You got to fix it, right? So in essence, here's the thing. God gave us our lives. We didn't create it ourselves. We didn't bring ourselves into existence. God gave us our lives. So he is the one who has the right to our life. Now, we in sin have ruined our lives beyond repair. We can't fix it. Out of our own efforts, we can try to repair it, but it's never going to be the same. Even if you stopped sinning from today and went forward, you still have that sin in the past. You've still offended God with the sin that you've already committed. So now, not, what, not only do you owe him a perfect life from now on, you owe him another perfect life on top of the one that you ruined. Because you already ruined a life and you owe him another life on top of that. So we owe God our lives. And when I say we owe God our lives, that means death. We owe him the life that we live. So it's only in essence that someone could live a perfect life in our place, not just come to the earth and die, but someone actually had to live, Jesus had to live a perfect life in our place to atone for our sins, to replace the life that we couldn't live. Make sense? Interesting. So, what does that all mean? 
It means that forgiveness does not just wipe things clean. Because someone is always taking the offense. It doesn't just mean like, all right, we're good from now on. Carry on, it's fine. Someone has already been offended. Someone always takes the offense for that sin. It's not like he said, I forgive you of your $6 billion debt and that's it. And the whole slate is clean. He lost $6 billion. So it's the same thing with God. And it's the same thing with us. Once when I was working at Exxon at the gas station, one night I lost $300 for my boss. And I was like, oh, what'd I do? It was actually a long story. I actually got like, I was like, uh, I had an allergic reaction. I had to like almost go to the hospital. But I lost $300 in the process. I was like, oh, the worst possible thing that could happen, right? And the next day, like I'm ready to explain, like you take it out of my paycheck. He says, no, I forgive you. And I was like, well, you can take it out of my paycheck. He's like, don't worry about it. I was like, it's $300. I owe you money. And he just forgave me because he's an awesome dude. He's awesome. I love my boss or my ex-boss. I saw him today. But you see, when he forgave me the debt of $300, he still lost money. It's not like there's $300 magically replaced to him because he forgave me. He was still taking the offense. So then people ask, is the gospel really that easy? If I live a terrible life and then at the end pray for forgiveness, will Jesus forgive me? How is that right? One of my friends asked that to me. You're telling me that Hitler, if all Hitler did is at the end of his life, even after killing a million Jews, pray for forgiveness, God would forgive him? Would he really do that? And the answer is, Yes. Well, then how is that fair? We see because God takes the offense. God's the one who says, I paid your price. I'm going to take it upon me. I'm going to suffer the penalty. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to take your suffering. I'm going to do it. I can do it. You can't do it on your own. It's only me. So Jesus takes the offense. It's not just wipe clean. It's not just like, yeah, don't worry about it. God took the penalty for our sins, every sin that you commit. It's not just wiped clean and we just forget about it. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Jesus died on the cross and you say, well, God, what is, what's the last thing that you did for me? When's the last time you did something for me and you, you supplied my needs or you gave me what I prayed for? Or you answered my prayers. When's the last time that you met me? Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me, the Lord says in Micah 6, chapter 3. And so often we just don't want to forgive people. We can't give it up. God gives up everything to become a man, gives up his godhood, comes down to the earth, forgives us of all of our sins while we were still sinners. Not while we were trying our best, but at our very worst, God died for us and forgave us. And just ask that we forgive other people too. Just forget about it. Take the offense upon yourself. But we say once again, forgive that man, forgive that lady. How I wish I, for, I could forget. I think I can tomorrow maybe, but I'm just not ready yet. You might say, Alan, you just don't know this person. This person will never change. This person that I'm thinking of that I can't forgive He's always going to be this way. She's always going to hurt me. If I trust this person again, they're going to fail me again. Number one, how do you know? Are you God? No. But Jesus is and he commands you to forgive them. If you were God, you probably would forgive them. Number two, 
Are you to forgive just based on how people treat you? Are you supposed to forgive people just as, as long as they're good to me from now on, as long as they won't, you know, hurt me with another $12,000, we'll be good. No, because even if they hit you with more offense, even if they fail you more, the thing that we leave God with, the way that we offend God with our sins is that much greater. It's the $12,000 compared to the $6 billion. Britt Merrick says, if God can extend grace and mercy as the most offended party, but we refuse to do so, then we must value ourselves above God. You can always discern those Christians who understand the gospel best because they act most humbly towards other people and their failures. How true is that? Now, I'm not asking you guys to just not feel pain. I'm not asking you to just be numb. Just like next time someone hurts you, just pretend like it didn't happen. Because forgiveness does not just mean that you wish the pain away. It means that you take the brunt of the pain upon ourselves because we know that Jesus himself took the pain for our sake. In other words, forgiveness at first might hurt. You might feel like this person will never repent. But maybe they're Paul. God forgives Paul. Meets him on the road to Damascus. And the person that was killing Christians all of a sudden becomes a, a person that is presenting the gospel. You never know what kind of effect your forgiveness can have on people. It's kind of like if you know what an oyster is and how pearls are made. There's a sea worm that digs a hole into the oyster. And in its place comes a beautiful pearl. That's kind of like how forgiveness comes out. There's the pain that comes in at first, but it's replaced with a beautiful thing called forgiveness. There is a, Britt Merrick uh, is a pastor out uh, of a reality in um, California. I forget the name of the town right off the top of my head. But he has a daughter that has cancer. She's battling cancer for a while now. I think uh, Mike Nelson mentioned it back in the day when he taught here last time. And they were going in for cancer treatments. And I read this in his book, and it's a really powerful illustration. But um, as they're getting cancer treatments, one time that they're going in, the doctor uh, gave her the wrong dose of the wrong medicine or the wrong type of chemo, which almost killed her. And not only did it almost kill her, but it left her permanently damaged in some areas in her brain. So malpractice, everyone's telling him, you got to sue him. You got to do what's right. I mean, your daughter's scarred and she might not be the same for the rest of her life. She almost died. She's given the adult dosage of this chemo. That wasn't even the right type of chemo. So he was faced with the decision, what do I do? I have to protect my daughter. I have to make things right. What do I do? So he went up to the doctor and met with him. The doctor was really nervous as he could see. And he told the doctor that they were Christians and that he forgives them. And from that, he says that the relationship was made right. And that doctor was so moved by that forgiveness that he became one of their best friends and the primary advocates of his daughter's cancer treatment. And he made sure that things were pushed aside, other treatments were pushed aside so that his daughter could be met first. You never know what kind of effect your forgiveness, a godly forgiveness can have on other people. So who is it that you have to forgive tonight? Who is it that you have uh, been offended by in which you have to forgive? 
Is it an old friend that you haven't spoken to in years? Person that you've written off that you're, you're thinking right now, well, I can't talk to them. It'd be awkward if I even spoke to that person at this point in my life. Is it a, a family member? Is it a parent, a brother, a sister? Who is it? With all the, the Lord has done in our lives, all the promises he gives us, why would we hold on to grudges that only minimize our effectiveness? Doesn't make things any better. Doesn't make us feel better. It only minimizes the way that God uses us. Every other religion says you should measure up, that you can earn your way to heaven. All you have to do is do these things and you can become better. But the Bible shows that we can't measure up. No matter how much good you do, how much things that you do for the Lord, it's not going to measure up. You're not going to be perfect. But Jesus did measure up for us. And he wishes that we show mercy to those that don't measure up to our standards. We may not measure up to God's standards, but God says, that's okay, you don't have to because my son did. So why do we criticize people that don't measure up to our expectations, to our standards? It might mean that we get hurt, but that's what God asks us to do because of the hurt that we've shown him and also for our good. He says that bitterness is choking you. It's preventing you from being used. You have to let it go. It's not doing you any good. You think that you're keeping yourself safe by holding this grudge against this person, by not getting close to this person. But in reality, all you're doing is building a wall between not only you and that person, but between you and God, between you and your future. Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, What can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offering should we give him? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him 10,000 rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? What could we possibly do to appease God? And he says, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray.